The Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. Want a drink? I never drink. Ah. Oh. No one in my family ever drinks. That's great. You've probably never run out of ice your whole life. Huh. I don't drink because drinking affects your decision making. You may be right. I can't decide. <laughs> What would happen if you took a old movie about alcoholism, stuck it in a cocktail shaker with a sober person, and shook until a spicy yet tart conversation was ready and served cold. What would happen would be that podcasts about movies that talk about drinking drugs and getting sober sloshed cinema, hosted by me, Sean Paul Mahoney, a sober person. Uh, welcome to this week's show here in Season Dose. Uh, the movie that we're talking about today is 1981's Arthur, starring Dudley Moore as the title character, along with Liz Minnelli as Linda, and the fabulous John Gilgood as the devoted Butler Hobson. Uh, I was kind of hesitant to take on this movie for a few reasons. See, I hadn't seen it since the 80s. I think I was like nine when it came out. And it was one of those things that, like, if you had HBO during the 80s, it was on every five minutes. Like, if this wasn't on, 9 to 5 wasn't on. And if 9 to 5 wasn't on, the original Jaws was on. And then this was back on again. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't really remember it. I knew that the humor was sort of broad. It had a sneaking suspicion that perhaps it didn't age so well. But what I did remember, of course, was that Christopher Cross song, you know, about when you get caught between the moon and New York City and the best that you can do is fall in love. Uh, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's kind of hard to fall in love with 1981's Arthur. Um, so hang in here with me because I'm going to patch together a hopefully lively show, a movie about a movie that frankly sucks. <laughs> Sorry about it. Yeah, it's not very good. Um, as I watched it, I enjoyed the opening Christopher Cross song. I enjoyed the uh, very late 70s, early 80s font that all of the credits roll by in. Yeah, I think uh, my funeral program will enjoy that font because um, <laughs> it's just so of that era. So, yeah, keep that in mind. And, um, and then, like, right away you see a Rolls Royce and you hear the cackle. The cackle. If you go into IMDb message boards, people love the freaking cackle. Um, the cackle belongs to Dudley Moore, of course. And it's the cackle of a drunk guy. And 
Um, it's, I gotta tell ya, like, right away, I was sort of uncomfortable. I'm like, oh no, oh no, we're supposed to be laughing at a guy who's drunk all the time. This is gonna be a tough sell. Keep in mind, it is a different era. It is 1981. Um, it is a lighter moment. However, it's not that light. Uh, much of Moore's persona was of this drunken party boy who um, played the piano. And the film was sort of crafted around him. And, uh, you know, Moore had previously toured as a comedy music duo with uh, Peter Cook. And uh, Cook himself was a major alcoholic, leading to the breakup of that duo. Um, but it was all, you know, that was in the 60s and 70s, so it was all this very light, bubbly thing. Uh, watching the film in the early 80s, in the midst of what we remember as um, the beginning of uh, not only the AIDS crisis, but like major fallout from the cocaine and crack cocaine crisis. So, um, a feeling that, uh, and you know, we're, and we're at a, a good, what, nearly 50 years of AA. So it's not like the country was completely stupid to the idea of, um, alcoholism. Nevertheless, this is a major studio film and a major comedy um, with big people behind it. You know, it was a popular script at the time before it even got made. Uh, as I was researching this, I rolled up the old research sleeves. Yeah, they're kind of like puffy sleeves. <laughs> they're sort of like pirate sleeves. So I rolled up my research sleeves and um, was reading different things about the movie. You guys, at one point in time... John Belushi was considered for the role of Arthur, but turned it down because he thought it would be a stereotype, which is kind of uh, haunting, I guess we could say, because um, it would have been a stereotype. And um, it would also would have been foreshadowing, and watching it now would be just fucking creepy, considering he died from drugs. Um, and then also as... Linda, Terry Fisher, uh, was considered for the part at one point as well. Um, and then other people, too, that we've talked about on this show uh, were also considered for different roles, like Meryl Streep. Um, but ultimately, those roles went to Moore and Minnelli. Uh, so, yeah, that's how the film opens, is this cackle of a drunk guy. And uh, despite my squirming... I made it through the next um, 87 minutes of the film. Um, the plot is... To call the plot paper thin would be generous. So here's the thing about, in my mind, about a comedy with a thin plot. Fine. Not a big deal. Have a thin plot. Have no plot. But nail the jokes. Like, the jokes have to be punk rock. Like, make sure that each joke just, like, cuts right down the middle. Look at an 80s movie like Sixteen Candles, for example. Simple pre premise. 
inexpensively made, but every single joke sticks the landing. So I'll when you're watching something like this, where the premise is Arthur is a drunken playboy, and his family wants his shit um, wants him to get his shit together. So in order for him to get his shit together, he has to marry the lovely Susan, played here by L.A. Law's Jill Eikenberry, uh, Googler, if you don't remember her. Um, and she comes from a nice family. She is also rich. And they want him to marry her. And if he doesn't, uh, he will lose his $750 million fortune. Um, he goes back and forth because all he doesn't really want to get married. He wants to party and be Arthur and not be Arthur. That would be a totally different show and probably more enjoyable if I spend a half an hour talking about be Arthur. If you can find a way for me to make that happen through the confines of Slosh Cinema, please email me. Anywho, uh, yeah, so he wants to be himself. He wants to continue to be a party boy. You know, uh, what a wacky, wacky existence this guy leads. You know, it's drinking all the time. He has a very elaborate toy train in his room. He has a butler played here beautifully and hilariously by John Gilgood. And um, really the saving grace of this script and of this film, if I'm totally honest here. He, uh, so... Yeah, I mean, he, and it's just, you know, it's all fun and games. He takes big bubble baths. He wears top hats. It's all uh, very identifiable or not for any alcoholic. Um, yeah, so it, it's light in some ways, but then, like, there are hints in the script that they never really get into that people know that, like, this is maybe a problem, and the way that he lives his life is maybe a problem. And it's never once suggested... By the way, if you've never seen the movie, Moore is playing drunk for, I'd say, 90% of the film. Uh, sure, he plays a convincing drunk. Does it get annoying? Yeah, but do real drunk people get annoying? Yeah, was I drunk and annoying for the better part of 20 years? Sure. Um, however, for a full-bodied, rootable center of a Hollywood comedy, um, yeah, I don't know if it works. I don't know if this portrayal of the drunken playboy is really that um, kind of thing that you root for. Nevertheless, at the time... Uh, this caricature appealed to people. The movie was a gigantic hit. So, what the hell do I know? And I'm also looking at it through a different lens. But, we'll get there. Uh, so, Moore's character, Arthur, is resisting this idea of settling down and becoming no normal. And, um, and although never suggested, but hinted at maybe getting sober and getting his shit together. Um... Again, it's 1981, so you would have assumed, you know, if he's from a rich family, they would have just thrown him into rehab. I mean, given the time frame, he would have run into people like Elizabeth Taylor. So no harm, no foul, especially with $750 million. 
But it just doesn't go there. I guess that would have been darker than the film wanted to be. The trajectory is about being light and fizzy and funny. And um, that's what it sets out to do. So on a outing with his beloved butler, they're at a high-end department store and they witness a woman um, stealing a necktie. Uh, the woman in question is none other than Linda Marola, played here with the signature razzmatazz that can only belong to Liza Minnelli. That's Liza with a Z, y'all. Um, and Liza... Okay, I'm just going to take a minute to paint the picture of what Liza is wearing the first time we see her, you guys. Liza Minnelli has a red cowboy hat, a yellow raincoat, a red bandana, and a t-shirt, and tight pants, and um, looks amazing. It's everything you want out of 1981 Liza Minnelli. So Liza gets busted by the security of um, the high fancy, I think it's Bergdorf's, uh, department store and Arthur and Hobson come to her rescue and say, oh, no, 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 she was actually shopping for us. Linda is, a.k.a. Liza, is bowled over by the gesture and appreciates it, but she's also a New Yorker, and she's like, okay, thanks for saving me. I'm out of here. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, being a drunk with no boundaries, he wants to immediately, like, become best friends with her. And um, he, they go out on a date and, um, you know, only in movies they have one date and they're like, oh my God, I love you. And, um, you know, it's a short film, so they had to speed it along. <laughs> He's like, I love you, but I have to marry Susan or I lose $750 million. And if a normal person had just met somebody, they'd be like, whoa, fucking slow down, Dudley Moore. Uh, worth noting as well, you guys, there is a scene where the two of them are, Liza Minnelli and Dudley Moore, are standing profile to profile, and I kid you not, they have, like, two versions of the same haircut. Minnelli's is a little bit, you know, Liza, more Liza-ish, and Dudley Moore's is a little bit curlier, but they're both kind of these, like, 80s hair crash test helmets and um delightful i mean i'm not one to talk i have a shaved head my husband does too so you know whatever maybe we're atta attracted to people with our same hair please discuss this amongst yourselves or tweet me your thoughts about this at sean paul mahoney on twitter i told you i'm stretching for things here to talk about the actual plot of the movie um, and that's basically it. You know, he has a lovely relationship with his butler, uh, played by John Gilgood. John Gilgood was a traditional British theater actor. I was looking into Gilgood. What a juicy past, y'all. Um, there's a book floating around out there that I need to find of his. But what I basically read online is Gilgood was on stage forever and highly respected and highly loved um, until a little oopsie 
in the 1950s where he was arrested for fooling around with a man in a public restroom in London. So he quickly escaped to Los Angeles and um, then eventually returned to the British stage and was beloved for the rest of his life and won a Oscar for his role here. Uh, he never formally came out of the closet, but he definitely applauded people like Sir Ian McKellen. I looked, it seems like he didn't really have an, a relationship with alcohol, although he had a relationship with big-time alcoholic Edward Albee, the playwright who we talked about in our first film of this season and who recently died. So that's interesting, and you can find that very easily online to find out what their little friendship frenemy dynamic was. It's kind of bitchy and fabulous. Um, nevertheless, he's great in the film, and he's the only thing that uh, Arthur has to a normal relationship. We are then left with the compelling, <laughs> in quotation marks, question of will Arthur marry... Poor Susan. I mean, poor Susan. She's like a cat. She's gorgeous. She's rich. Why the fuck is she messing around with this guy that has Liza Minnelli's haircut? Like, ugh, I'd have been like, next. Um, but apparently, dating was a problem in 1981, whereas alcoholism was not. So, yeah, you, you pick what you can get when you're a millionaire. Uh, anyway, so... Suspension of disbelief, of course. And we talked about films like this before when we talked about uh, My Favorite Year um, earlier. The difference between O'Toole's performance and Moore's performance. O'Toole's performance in that movie, there is a tinge of sadness. And there is a heartbreak in his eyes when you look in his eyes. Um, Moore here is playing for laughs. You know, Moore's personal life is fascinating as well. Uh, many people thought and assumed he was an alcoholic in real life because he had that bubbly attitude, especially uh, later in his life. He was sort of written off as like a drunk and was even fired from The Mirror Has Two Faces with La Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Listen. I'm giving you Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli in one show. This has to be the gayest podcast of all time. I'm just saying. Anyway, so he's fired from that movie because he was missing lines and was kind of unable to perform. And the big rumor around Hollywood was that he was drunk the entire time. People close to Moore, however, say it was mainly because of his... Um, he was suffering from PSP, which is progressive supernocular palsy. I think I got that right. Um, which affected his speech. So later, when he was trying to have gigs and perform, he really couldn't do that. Of course, this being Hollywood and being somebody dead, there's another side of the story, which is effing crazy, but maybe not too crazy for those of us who are addicts and alcoholics. His fourth wife... Fourth, you heard me, guys. Um, he was married four times. His fourth wife claims that Moore used to eat crystal meth and watch porn all day long. So, there you go. I will never know the truth. 
The truth, however, in the performance is it's comedic. Did Dudley Moore go on to really meet the success of this film later on? No, not so much because it's a limited appeal. Uh, Filmmaking-wise, there's not much of note here, you guys. The comedic timing that does exist in the movie mainly relies on John Gielgud's ninja-like ability to cut through with great one-liners. And uh, Minnelli has a very heightened energy that is a nice tonic to the slurring cartoonishness that more um, pours all over the film like a kid does syrup on pancakes. Um, So those two things really make for it visually... You know, it looks like every other 80s comedy. If you didn't see the stars, you would be confused. You're like, is this trading spaces? Is this... I mean, you wouldn't know what the hell it was. So, um... And, you know, I have a lot of problems with the movie. So, And we'll... Let's talk about that right now. What the hell? Um... So, I was uh, reading about the film, and then, of course, I started... You can't look it up without reading about the huge bomb that was the remake that happened in 2011 with Russell Brand. And there's a great article um, from The Hollywood Reporter that talks about how one of the big reasons... Well, it has five reasons why it bombed. Uh, One of the big reasons it bombed is that alcoholism is just not funny anymore we know more now and to have that kind of a character as a clown oh you guys it's like on par with like bad racial stereotypes like it it just does not seem okay and like having been a person who was drunk a lot like i mean i'm not being overly sensitive here it's just all not that funny I'm all for things being funny, but this is just not funny. There's not another color to Moore's character. There's, um, he's either, like, drunk or sort of like, oh, you feel bad for him. But there's not anything else. There's not, like, a real heart to him. And, uh, I think it was a mistake. I think it probably passed at the time as a bubbly comedy And, you know, people did a lot of cocaine in the 80s, so maybe they thought this was funny. I personally don't think it's funny. Don't think it held up too well. Uh, Love Liza Minnelli. And, of course, John Gilgood is genius in the movie. Um, If you could find a YouTube clip of all of his best one-liners from the film, that would be preferable than having to sit through it. However, if it is still being played on HBO... It wouldn't be the worst thing to catch it. There is a sequel to the film, which uh, I will not watch unless you beg me and pay me um, and send Reese's Peanut Butter Cups to my house. I don't know if I'm on board for Arthur 2 on the rocks. I think I'd rather put a hot poker in my eye or sit through less than zero again. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say... Arthur, from 1981, this is a two-star jam. Uh, Proceed with caution. I would not watch it 
thinking that it would be triggering. I just wouldn't watch it because it's a bad movie that really, um, all these years later, is not so funny, in my opinion. So check it out. Watch it or rewatch it and let me know what you think at sloshedcinemapod at gmail.com. Or you can always tweet me uh, at Sean Paul Mahoney on Twitter or um, come to seanlogs.com and leave me all of your brilliance and films about uh, about films on my blog. Okie dokie. So uh, this got to me, got me thinking though, like, so can this be funny? Can alcoholism and drug addiction be funny? And my answer is yes. Like, we touched on it with uh, my favorite year, and we're talking about it again. And we talked about it when we talked um, about some of the different shows on Netflix. And, you know, in my mind, there has to be sort of a balance. Like, it has to be really honest. And it has to be a little bit dark. And there has to be sort of that, oh my fucking God, I can't believe I'm laughing about this element. And um, so I've, I believe like it's achievable storytelling wise. And a great example currently of that is HBO's High Maintenance, which chronicles the exploits of a Manhattan, New York drug dealer a pot dealer who uh does all of his business on a bike and um it's very funny it's innovative in the storytelling and the performances are fantastic the other thing about it is it shows a really dark side to addiction in addition to like this is this guy's business however it's not all fun and games and a lot of the people that he interacts with are seriously messed up. And it's not like... I don't say... I wouldn't say it's anti-pot. But I wouldn't say it was pro-pot. I would say it's pro-human. Let's say that. That um, it's funny. It's uncomfortable. It's dark. And it's realistic. Uh, it's apparently based on a web series. Which I am not up to speed on. Give me a break. I'm a 43-year-old gay man. I'm just trying to, like, work it all out, people. <laughs> trying to stay sober and figure out what the fuck Snapchat is. It's it's a whole new world. Um, so, like, yeah, I say um, check it out because it's very cool storytelling. And as addicts, it really goes there. You know, the first episode really goes there. It kind of talks about uh, that gay guy and his straight girlfriend that everybody knows and can't stand. Um, they're sort of the central storyline that goes through these drug deliveries. And that's what's kind of fun about the storytelling, too, is that, you know, the, the lead character is delivering drugs, but then we get these short stories of the people that are his customers. And... Um, I'm a big fan of like anthologies and short stories. So this kind of threads everything together and the characters kind of repeat themselves, which is cool. And, uh, this first episode goes there and, um, talks about crystal meth addiction. 
Um, see how I tied that in? I tied that in beautifully with the story about Chris, uh, Dudley Moore eating crystal meth. You are welcome. Um, so, yeah. Essentially, this gay character meets a guy on Grinder, and he really likes him. And to get close to him, he goes to Crystal Meth Anonymous meetings with him, even though he's not a crystal meth addict. What the crystal meth anonymous meetings, though, work as as a metaphor to his unmanageable relationship with his straight girlfriend. Um, there are lots of famous people and famous people from gay recovery in this scene, one of which being Bob the Drag Queen, recent winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, which is my obsession, as anybody who knows me knows very well. So he has a fun little cameo in one of the meetings. Uh, yeah, it's interesting using this background of recovery as a form to belong and also to admit um, other unmanageability in one's life. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's really funny. It's really dark. Uh, the second episode that's currently posted is equally as good and um, worthy of a discussion afterwards. You know, Michael and I finished and we both had things to say about it and thought it was really ballsy. And what a relief. You know, how cool that there is storytelling like that currently. So that's high maintenance on HBO. I'm going to say it's four stars and worth a watch. Perhaps triggering, however, if you are a big pothead and trying to wean off being on marijuana, I'd say proceed with caution. Maybe not marathon it. Try a episode and see how it goes. Um, but worth watching and discussion worthy. You know, you could realistically, you could take pot out of that storyline and change it into something else. So uh, watch it and let me know your thoughts. It's funny because, you know, this shows that maybe our progress on talking about addiction has changed. And it has, you know, we're growing up and making it funny and being more honest about it. And what a relief, you know, if we were still making alcoholic clown movies like we were in 1981 with Arthur, we'd be in pretty bad shape. So there is hope, my friends. And that's a beautiful place to end our little show. Uh, join me next week. It's going to be either one of two movies. And I'm not even going to tease what they are. You're just going to have to come back and see what they are. So... Thanks for joining me today. Hey, be sure to check out all of the fantastic programs here on the Since Right Now Network. All right. And remember, no matter if you're sitting by yourself in the dark watching a movie, you are never alone. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy.